Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, we appreciate you joining us each and every week, as you always do. Before we get started with this week's episode, just a couple of notes. Again, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Guys, those reviews are so important. Please take the time to write them. doesn't have to be a large review, just something that lets us know uh, what you think of the program, uh, how much you like the show, guests you want to hear in the future. Speaking of guests you want to hear in the future, send us an email. Producer at hazardground.com. Once again, it's producer at hazardground.com. And send us an email of not only what you think about the show, but if you have any guest ideas, know somebody you want to be on the show or know of a story that maybe we haven't told you that you'd like us to research and find out more about, we'll certainly do that. So again, producer at hazardground.com. You send us an email, we'll get back to you. Also, I want to remind you guys about our partnership with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on that Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage there. Do your normal Amazon shopping. Whatever you guys spend, we get a percentage of. We take that percentage and donate it right back to some of the amazing charities you've heard right here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Now that that's all out of the way, let's get on with this week's episode. Joining us this week is a 13-year veteran of the United States Air Force, currently serving in the Air Force Reserves as a major. She was part of the former CST culture support teams and deployed with the 75th Ranger Regiment to Afghanistan. She is also a Pat Tillman scholar. She is Annie Kleiman joining us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Annie, welcome. Thank you for joining me. On oh, Annie, so excited to talk to you. Uh, you are actually the second member of the CST cultural support teams that we've had on the pod. And look, I find that whole thing and that whole dynamic so interesting because it really is an insertion of females into a place where they've never been before. So it's groundbreaking. It's historic. And I love hearing about how you guys all get into that. But we go back to the beginning and tell us how you got into the military to begin with. Uh, yeah, sure. So I uh, was a Civil Air Patrol cadet. Um, starting from the age of 11, um, for people who don't know what that is, it's, uh, Civil Air Patrol is the civilian auxiliary of the Air Force. If you imagine essentially a Boy Scout program, uh, but with Air Force uniforms. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> we, it's, there's, I think there's like an equivalent to like, like there's like the sea cadets, there's the young Marines. I don't know if the Army, uh, has one that's similar, but kind of sort of a, a mix between like JROTC and, um, scouting. Um, so I, I started doing that, uh, pretty young and just kind of fell in love with, um, what I thought at the time was the military environment, which to me was, you know, shining shoes, putting on uniforms, doing a lot of drill and ceremonies, um, calling each other sir and ma'am, taking it very seriously, uh, but just kind of fell in love with that whole environment, uh, wanted to join the Air Force after college. So ended up, um, doing ROTC, and then just commissioning straight out of undergrad from there. Any particular reason the Air Force over any of the other branches? Did you ever think about another branch? Well, Civil Air Patrol was was based off of the Air Force, so that was kind of the the initial bias. Um, and my sort of perception at the time was that uh, you know the Air Force was maybe a little bit more focused on technology. Um, I've always had this kind of a weird cognitive dissonance where like I wanted to, you know, to be in the military, but not 
be like two in the military. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I mean, sometimes it, it, it's it's almost just like dating the military, not necessarily marrying it, right? I mean, it's yeah. I might I might get some some crap from my Air Force friends, but. <laughs> All right, so you go ROTC uh, as you're going through it, and you realize that you know ROTC is kind of like a, an injection of steroids to the Civil Air Patrol stuff. Any <laughs> thoughts of kind of hey, maybe I don't want to do this? Is there anything else you wanted to do for your career? Uh, no, I think I was I think I was pretty focused um, on commissioning in the Air Force. It was actually kind of interesting because when I w- when I did Civil Air Patrol, I I was like very, very heavily involved and I was kind of at the sort of the upper levels as as involved as you could be. So I was going to national level activities. Um, I got to go to a course called pararescue orientation course where you are literally trained by uh, actual PJs and you basically just imagine a bunch of like 15 to like 20 year old cadets um, and you're in the mountains of New Mexico where the PJ students actually do their training and they're just kind of getting the shit beat out of them by actual PJ and SEER instructors. Um, wow. <laughs> so I got to, I got to do that as like a, you know, as a 17 year old, um, was sort of operating, was, was on the national cadet advisory council. Um, I was a, I was a cadet colonel. I was a spots award recipient, which is, um, you know, a big deal as a, as a civil air patrol cadet. So I was, I was heavily involved and it was actually kind of interesting because the first couple of years of ROTC was actually a step back, uh, than what I was doing as, as a civil air patrol cadet. So I was a little bored, maybe a little frustrated with the ROTC program, um, but was always pretty focused on commissioning in the air force. Now, higher math tells me, and again, it's not my strongest subject, but uh, 2019 now, minus 13 years you're in, so we're talking about 2006. 9-11 has already started. We're in the middle of two wars. What did your parents say when, all, when you, had, you were making all these decisions about a, a career in the military? Yeah, they were, um, I mean, they were a little bemused, I think. Um, we didn't have... We don't have a strong history of military service. Well, actually, let me let me back up a little bit. So my parents uh, are immigrants from China. Um, I was actually born in China, and we moved here when I was about five. Um, my I, my father, and he's told me this story, and it's it's probably gone through multiple variations in in my memory. Uh, so my father grew up in communist China, and the way he tells it was he had actually. Uh, tried to become a pilot in the Air Force and had made it to the sort of the final selection round uh, and was not selected because his family was not members of the Communist Party. So for these political reasons. So he had sort of had this kind of history or a desire for military service, like from, you know, way back in his youth. Um, but by the time we had settled in in the States and we're kind of living our lives there. I grew up in Utah. Um, we really didn't have anything to do with the military. So really it was right. all just my participation in civil air patrol and kind of falling in love with that. I think they were, you know, a little confused. Um, my, my dad was a doctor, you know, my mom was a librarian. There was, you know, sort of expectations that I would do sort of the typical, uh, you know, good Chinese kid thing. So like, you know, major in engineering could be a doctor, Something along those lines. I did actually major in engineering. Um, <laughs> but so yeah, I think they were just, I think they were a little confused as to my choice of career. 
uh, but really weren't, um, didn't really object to it too much, you know, kind of mentioned it a few times. I think they were hoping I would do a couple of years and then get out and go do something else. Um, but for the most part, they were, um, maybe just cautiously supportive. Tangential question. That's really random. Um, you said your dad wasn't part of the communist party in China. I thought everybody who lived in China was part of the communist. I thought that was kind of like a prerequisite. Uh, it's not automatic. Um, hmm, interesting. The way I understand it is I think you have to either apply or sort of be invited to join. Huh. Um, and it, it opens up more, uh, more opportunities. Um, but some people, you know, either chose not to, or were never invited. Um, or whatever. Stay stuff you learn. I mean, that's, I, yeah. I, I thought it was just part of being born in China. You were naturally a communist. I mean, I don't mean that as a pejorative. I just, you know, right. just like if you're born in America, you're kind of naturally a capitalist just because it's, it's what's here. <laughs> um, anyway, I digress. So, okay. Once you finish ROTC and get commissioned, what's next for you? Uh, so I commissioned as an intelligence officer. Um, I had sort of, uh, was that by choice? Kind of, um, yes. Okay. Mostly. Well, that, that's a, a little bit more background, I guess. So I had my thought initially kind of going into ROTC was my, my very long-term plan. Uh, and you'll laugh at this is I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, I was a huge Star Trek fan growing up. I actually still have a Starfleet uniform that fits me in my closet, uh, <laughs> as we speak. Um, so I was, I was interested in space, um, wanted to be an astronaut, but was actually, not um, super into like doing sort of like scientific research on my own. I knew I wasn't going to become an astronaut as a pilot. I was too short, um, just was not, was not my thing. So in my head, I thought, okay, I'll join the Air Force. I will, you know, be like a physicist or do applied research in the Air Force. And that'll be like my pathway to, to be an astronaut. And then sort of realized as I got, as I was going through ROTC that, um, you know, science and engineering in the, in the military was not really a thing that you did while you were active duty. It was, you know, something that the active duty service member would like supervise contractors or, um, you know, like other, other team members, but it wasn't really necessarily something you did as an air force officer. Um, and then we had this sort of weird, this weird mix up where the entire graduating senior class for my ROTC detachment ended up getting, uh, assigned as communications officers, um, every single one. And none of us could understand it. Um, it wasn't anything that any of us had requested. And I, I don't know if my, you know, detachment commander slipped a 20 to somebody (laughs) under the table, but two weeks later, uh, I was told that I had been reassigned as a developmental engineer in the air force and two weeks after that, I was told that I'd been selected for something called the OPEX program, which stands for Operational Experience, which is a program where they take engineers and assign them to uh, intelligence, I think security forces or missiles, maybe maintenance as well, to give them sort of a more tactical operational experience before putting them back into engineering, which was exactly um, what it was that I wanted. Uh, by the time I was a, a senior in in college. Um, so, yeah, I'm not really quite sure what happened. The sort of mysterious administrative workings of uh, 
Air Force Personnel Command. But that's how I ended up um, headed off to Goodfellow Air Force Base for training as an intelligence officer when I commissioned. That's why the stamp on your backside says property of the U.S. government. You don't really get a choice sometimes. It just is the way it is. All right. right. So um, what's your first duty assignment and where do you go? I mean, well, actually, you have to go to school first, obviously, after you commission. And and what's that? Just give me the, the long and the short of that stuff. Uh, so I, so I commissioned in 2005, um, you know, had the summer off and then headed off to Goodfellow Air Force Base, uh, in San Angelo, Texas, uh, which is known as the, I think, largest city that's not connected to the interstate highway system. Hmm. Interesting. Where is it? Um, <laughs> it's in West Texas. Um, like about- Odessa, Midland area or... I don't, I, uh, I'm I don't know. I'm trying to think. It's, it's about three hours from San Antonio. Okay. All right. Um, just kind of, yeah, in the middle of nowhere, you drive past a lot of deer um, <laughs> on your way to and from. Uh, so was a Goodfellow Air Force Base from about August of 2005 to, I think, June of 2006. Some of that time was just spent on casual, just waiting for a class to start so that or waiting, waiting for a slot in a class so that I could start. Um, so finished out um, intelligence officer training there and then uh, headed off to Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I was supporting the RC-135 uh, River Joint Cobra Ball and Combat Scent, which are um, large airborne uh, ISR platforms. How quickly do you get to your first deployment? My first deployment was 2007. So I think I was on station for about a year um, where we were doing sort of typical what the Air Force calls unit level intel support. So we were building current intel briefs for the wing commander. We were building you know, pre-deployment briefings for the air crews um, and then also uh, sort of internal training slides for the air crews. So teaching them about different um, you know, fighter, foreign fighters and radars and missile systems and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And then was out the door, I want to say July of 2007, uh, was my first deployment, but that was to, uh, Al-Udeed. Um, so it was just more like summer camp than a very, um, dusty and hot location. So um, Kuwait, then. <laughs> I mean, your first deployment's in Kuwait? Qatar. Oh, Qatar. I'm sorry. That's right. Okay. I get, get, get my, uh, Middle Eastern. Base is confused. Um, so Qatar is a uh, small country right on the Gulf, uh, you know, the Persian Gulf. It's a beautiful place, actually. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I would I would highly recommend if, if you ever had the kind of scratch to go vacation there, you could. Yeah. It's, it's that yeah. kind of it's that kind of gorgeous. Um, but you're not really doing anything there, right? I mean, you guys are so far away <laughs> from anything that's that's going on. Um, it's, it, is it kind of boring for the first four to six months there? I mean, okay, so you'll you'll actually laugh at this. It was only a two month deployment. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I don't really laugh at it. And for those listening who aren't military, the Air Force typically has much shorter deployments than the Army or the Marine Corps. So yes, you know, Army deployments do- are about a year. Air Force are usually four to six months. Correct. Four to six. It depends on the unit. Um, what's actually really unique about the unit that I was supporting is um, these are the these were. RC-135 rivet joints, so they're flying sort of airborne reconnaissance missions. Um, this particular platform had actually been continuously deployed um, since before 9-11. They were doing, uh, you know, operation like Southern Watch and Northern Watch. Um, so they had actually been, I think by the time I got there, this, this platform had been continuously deployed for, it was like 16 years or something. Um, and it was actually, it was actually a pretty tough ops tempo because it was typically, 
two months out and then um, as short as two months home and then turning right around and headed back out the door again. So while they weren't gone for a long stretch at a time, they were just constantly, um, you know, going in and out of theater. So it was, it was still, it was tougher, I think, on the air crews. They had like a more set deployment schedule, um, whereas the intel support, we would kind of schedule people as we could and try to give them some time off. How much, uh, of that, how much of that deployment like prepared you for what was next or did it not? Was it just one of those experiences you just kind of went through and, for lack of a better term, suffered through for what you had to do? <laughs> you know, I mean, it eased me into my subsequent deployments. I think it was, it's like, like you kind of dipped a toe into it. It wasn't the full on where like I have to carry a weapon and I have to worry about, you know, incoming rockets and all that stuff. It was, it was, uh, it was kind of like a, a helpful transition that like eased me into the idea of like, okay, I'm operating in a deployed environment. All right. So when does the actual real first deployment show up? <laughs> so I did, I did two of these, uh, two month deployments to Al Udeed. And then in 2009, I deployed to Baghdad. Um, I was there for six months, was supporting, uh, an army uh, brigade combat team. So I was there doing uh, what was known as Domex, which is document and media exploitation. So as the, this was with conventional army forces. So as the, you know, the patrol units were going out, if they were bringing anything back that they had found, you know, in compounds or whatever. So cell phones, computers, um, you know, notebooks, anything with any sort of writing on it. It was my team's job to take all of those materials um process it, get it digitized. And then we had a lot of translators who would then comb through all of that material and look for things of Intel value. And then we would then take that, package it up in a report and push that to the S2 shop that we were supporting, who would then take it, you know, combine it with any other Intel streams they were getting and right. push it to their their units that were going out again. Right. So you, t- you take the data for those non-military, take the data and then turn it into actionable intelligence in which you can go find another target or um, search out other areas where bad guys may be hiding. Or, w- w- yep. When you do that stuff, what stands out to you is some of the more memorable things that you remember going over and going like, whoa, you know, was there any, any of the, that type of information you came across? We We actually found indication that uh, some of the local workers on the base that we were at had some uh, ties to some other bad guys. Um, so that was interesting. I mean, by the time, by the time I was there, you know, it was 2000, 2009, um, you know, things weren't, it, it wasn't super kinetic. We were turning a lot of the operations over to Iraqi units um, so in some cases we were actually hoping for more work just to kind of keep ourselves, right. you know, more occupied. If we're going to be deployed, we might as well be doing something interesting. Um, but yeah, I think that was, that was at the, the sort of the tail end, uh, of my deployment where I, I forget exactly what the, the chain of events were, but we had, um, basically gotten the phones of some of the workers on base and ran their data and found that they had, you know, the term was, I think, nefarious contacts or something, um, but found that they were then connected with, you know, other guys that, that the S2 shops have been looking at before. So that was kind of interesting. I actually don't know what the follow-up was because I ended up um, redeploying after that. Gotcha. I was just curious, is there a sense of, um, I mean, I guess accomplishment is the right word. You know, when, when you take all that information, put it together and you could have 
for all intents and purposes, prevented something really bad from happening. Yeah, I mean, that's all that's the hope, right? Like we're we were just, a, you know, a very small piece and a bigger sort of Intel apparatus. So the hope is always like, hey, maybe we found, you know, something that contributed and like had some sort of tangible effect. Um, I do know that we had so we had teams kind of spread out all over the country, so in, embedded with you know various brigades and battalions. Um, I do know that some of the work that our other teams did, I think, resulted in um, actually taking one like an insurgent to trial um, and being able to like prosecute the guy, you know, in an Iraqi court of law. So we we had some tangible results, but it's always nice to know when we're kind of able to trace that back to something specific that we did. So you redeploy back. It's sometime late 2009, 2010. Uh, I assume shortly thereafter you come across the term CST, cultural support team. When you come across those words, what's your first thought? Uh, so so, there's, so a little bit of, I guess, background stuff happened in between then. So I got back in 2010, and that was when the Air Force was basically saying like, hey, you've had your fun as a uh, as an Intel officer, it's, you know, it's time f- now for you to come back and be a developmental engineer, which was, you know, the deal that was sort of made at the, when I first commissioned through the OPEX program. Um, and the, the key, uh, failing of that program that I think the Air Force didn't necessarily foresee is that everybody who does the program wants to stay in the operational career field, right? It's kind of a, it's kind of a self-selection going on. People who want operational experience sign up for this program. They do it. They decide they like it. They want to stay. Um, and the Air Force personnel system gets very grumpy <laughs> when that happens. Um, so I had put in a request to stay as an intelligence officer. Um, at the time, the intel career field was was hurting for people. We were pretty undermanned. There was just a lot of um, high ops tempos. A lot of intel officers were just deploying um, out the door left and right. The Air Force was filling a lot of in lieu of taskings for the Army. So the Army was, um, you know, basically had these sort of the like the Domex job that I did in Baghdad where the Army couldn't fill it and the Air Force was um, taking intel officers and filling those those extra positions. Um, and the career field that, that I was supposed to be going back to, this developmental engineering, uh, was actually pretty healthily manned. Um, it was pretty close to hundred percent. There wasn't a lot of deployments. It just, you know, wasn't as operational. Um, and so in my mind, it made perfect sense to go, Hey, I'm willing to stay as an intelligence officer. Um, you're pretty healthy with engineering. You don't really need me. I haven't even been doing the job. You should just let me stay as Intel. Uh, and of course the air force came back and said, no, um, in all their so, infinite wisdom, right? Yes. <laughs> and, and then a couple of years later started, um, offering bonuses for Intel officers to stay in longer. And I was like, I would have stayed for free. But um, anyways, <laughs> uh, so at that point, I actually, my active duty service commitment was up. Um, and so I said, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave active duty. I'm going to be a reservist because um, I think I can do the things that I want to do there. Um, I had actually gotten, I had applied to be a reserve, an intel officer reservist for Air Force Special Operations Command. Um, which was the command that my husband, who was a pilot, was was serving under. Um, so I'd gotten picked up to be a reservist, an intel officer with AFSOC. And at that point, I just said, you know what, there's there's better things that I can do. 
um, as a reservist than as active duty. Now, was so, your husband active duty or is he also in the reserves? He was active duty. Okay. Yeah. And the only reason I ask is just because I'm trying to tie it all together as far as, you know, operationally how life is when you're not, you know, full time and he is. I mean, obviously it's a different, you know, um, sort of pace of life, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So you end up in the same unit with him. What's next? So I, uh, just by just a series of, uh, just very kind of lucky events end up working as a reservist, practically full time, uh, at the air force special operations school, which is this kind of fantastic, fantastic academic institution, um, that does these like five day long courses, mostly for, you know, air force special operations personnel, but also just broader military or government personnel, government personnel in general, focused on uh, regional education and, you know, counterinsurgency warfare and just introduction to special operations, sort of this whole gamut. Um, I end up teaching there. Uh, they handed me this course that they were planning on getting rid of because attendance wasn't all that high. And they kind of looked at me and said, here, you know, take this course, see what you can do with it. And if it works out, great, we'll keep it. If not, you know, no loss, we're going to get rid of anyways. It was the cross-cultural communications course. Um, so they basically just gave it to me and said, do whatever you want with it, uh, which was fantastic uh, and a little unexpected. Um, so I got to take this course and, and we made it uh, more operational, more focused on, you know, specific issues and topics that, you know, a special operator would care about while they were in the field working with, you know, a host nation counterpart. Um, and so I sort of had this reputation as like, hey, you know, Captain Kleiman is like the culture person, like that's her thing. Um, at the same time, I was also had like gotten into CrossFit a lot. Um, and like most people who do CrossFit talked a lot about the fact that I did CrossFit. So people knew. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost a so, cult with you guys. You know that, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So people that I worked with knew that I was really into culture and that I was really into working out. Um, so when the, you know, announcements for the cultural support teams came out, I think I had like two or three people that I worked with who all forwarded me this email and said like, Hey, you should do this. Like, this looks like it was written for you. Um, and I was, I was lucky because for that, that specific time period, this was around like August, August of 2011, for whatever reason, the army had decided to open up applications to, Air Force Special Operations Command. Um, to my knowledge, this was the only time that this was kind of available, like institutionally, um, to a different service. There's been onesies, twosies of women from other services who have heard about the CST program and just managed to like move, you know, heaven and earth to get themselves into the program, usually because they, they, you know, were able to get a general officer to advocate on their behalf. Um, for that, that couple of months, it was the only time that it was just open to any AFSOC applicant in addition to the army. Um, so I just really lucked out with the timing. So when you first, you know, are told about it, I mean, do, do you think that this is a way for you to kind of, uh, you feel like you're going to get back in and, and restart things up again because it, it piques your interest or, was just just something that was, you know, as you mentioned, sort of serendipitous and it fell in your lap and I'll give it a shot kind of deal. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it just sounded like something that was really cool to do. Um, you know, like I had grown up in the military where the ground combat band was just like set, it was just firmly in place, right? Like it was just a fact of life. Um, and it honestly just did not even occur to most of that, that that was something that was going to change, um, you know, anytime soon, if ever. Um, I had sort of always had kind of an affinity for special operations based off of that, you know, my experience in Civil Air Patrol and getting, you know, yelled at by PJs when I was <laughs> a teenager. Just always thought that that was like that career field and those kinds of jobs were just cool and interesting but I'd always just taken it as a baseline assumption that those were things that were not open to me, right? Simply because I was female. Um, and so to, to, I remember reading the description about CSTs on the website and like reading about what it is that they did. Um, just the chance to do that seemed, you know, amazing. Like it was something that I never thought that I would have the opportunity to do. Um, you know, and as an Intel officer, for us, like the closest thing, you know, is the thought of like, oh, cool, I could maybe like be the one looking, you know, at a UAV feed and telling the special operators on the ground what's going on. Like for us, that's like as tactical as you can get. Right. Um, so, you know, reading about what it is that the CSTs were able to do was just, you know, kind of mind blowing. You know, you said earlier that you kind of liked the military, like, you, you know, you liked it enough, but you didn't want to marry it, so to speak. You, you, you realize the cultural support teams are, are, are very much of a marriage, right? Like it, it amps things up to another level. And, and the only reason uh, I bring it up is because, I mean, you know, obviously you grow and mature, but was it one of those things where you ever thought, well, maybe this is a commitment I'm not, you know, wanting to make, or was it just the excitement of the whole job that kind of said, screw it, I'll, I'll, I'll go for it no matter what? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I was, I was excited about the idea. It just sounded like something amazing to do. Um, and like I said, I'd always had this kind of weird cognitive dissonance with the military where I, I had gone into the military planning on a 20 year career. Um, right. But at the same time was like, well, I don't really want to be like, you know, into combat. Like I, I wasn't like some of the other CSTs who, you know, who was sort of like they, they grew up wishing that they could be in combat and wanting to be in infantry and CST was sort of like the culmination of, you know, of, of everything that they had, had ever wanted. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was weird. I, I wasn't necessarily like that. I wasn't like actively looking for a way to get into combat. Um, but just for some reason, the idea of being able to like work with special operations, um, while doing this, you know, sort of very interesting cultural type work, uh, was just very compelling for me. So take me through the application process. You have to go to assessment and selection and everything else. What was that like for you? Um, yeah, so I, so I think I, I heard about this call for application, you know, from a couple of colleagues and, you know, hemmed and hawed about it. I talked with my husband about it and was like, well, you know, this is like assessment is just a couple of weeks away. I have courses coming up. We had all these other things. And I, and I remember saying to him, like, well, now that I know that, you know, Air Force people can apply, maybe I'll wait for the next rotation. Um, and I remember him just looking at me and being like, look, if you're going to do it, like, just do it. Like, do it now. Um, so the the just even putting together a package for assessment and selection was, you know, we had to do a, it was a, a 10K ruck march. We had to do the Army PT test, which was a little bit longer than the Air Force test. And then. I had to get, I think, an 05 to like sign off on it. 
Uh, and I think I did all of that in the span of like three days. Like I took the army PT test on a, you know, Wednesday night. I think I did the Rook March on like Thursday morning, got the O5 signature on Friday and like submitted the package the following week after that. Um, and after that it was, I mean, it was a whirlwind. I got picked up to go to assessment and selection, uh, which was up at Fort Bragg. Um, I think I literally, I went TDY. I had one last course that I was doing my five day culture course that was in New Mexico. We had a new contractor that was taking over the course or like handed off the course to him, you know, finished out that TDY and basically like turned around and went up to assessment and selection. Uh, and, uh, I mean, assessment selection was, it was, it was five days in the field. There's a couple of days at the beginning and at the end for, uh, you know, admin stuff. Uh, but it was, I mean, it was an amazing experience. It was the first time that I'd been with dozens of other women in the military who were, you know, who just had their shit together. You know, they were, they were strong, they were focused, they were dedicated, um, yeah. And I remember like the whole week we would just keep looking around and being like, I didn't realize there were so many other people like me. Um, and it was, it was cool to see that for the first time. Um, but it was five days where it was very physically demanding, um, but also mentally challenging. They operated in a, an environment where you just literally got no feedback. Um, I was expecting to get yelled at. I was going to be, that I was going to be doing, you know, push-ups and whatever. And there was, there was none of that at all. It was, we would, you know, get matter of fact instructions written on a whiteboard, um, which we had to check periodically and we would just be told what to do. We would do it. And then we would get told our next set of instructions with zero feedback as far as, you know, did I pass? Did I fail? Where do I fall, you know, in the rack and stack? Am I going to make it? Am I going to not? The only time you got any sort of feedback was was for, you know, sort of timed events. Like if you could see that you were the last one coming in for a run um, or you could, you know, count how many push-ups you had done or whatever. But yeah, besides that, it was just sort of like very ambiguous operating environment. Yeah. And for those non-military listening, you know, that's, that's difficult only because everything we do, you know, we have task condition and standards. And the last part of the standards is the standard of whatever we're doing, whether it's a training, a class, whether it's a, a physical event or, or a mental event, there's always some sort of, the military doesn't ever operate or, or the conventional military doesn't operate without some sort of guidelines for everything. In the special operations world, it's clearly a lot different. Um, they want you to operate in ambiguity because that's generally the environment that special operators work in. So uh, from that standpoint, you know, I certainly could see where some of the um, maybe confusion or frustration lied with you. What was it like with the other females in the class? What was the other the interaction like with other females? Because, you know, I've had this this discussion with a lot of females um, and, you know, we talk about female progression in the military and. Um, you know, them being in positions of power and, and how they sort of break the proverbial glass ceiling and things of that nature. But I, I've also run into a lot of females who tell me that the biggest obstacle in the military to their progression isn't males, it's other females. Um, and it's other females who kind of just say, well, you're not as good as me and I've walked through these steps and you have to do what I do to kind of get where they are because it's it, not that they're threatened per se, but, you know, it, they don't want to make anybody's path easier because their path wasn't easy, so to speak, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I did not see that um, when I was go during the CST program. Um, you know, at assessment and selection, when we're still kind of getting to know each other, I mean, there's there's some kind of subtle posturing, you know, dropping like 
your two mile time or your, you know, how much you squat or deadlift or whatever. There's, there's a little bit of that. Um, but I think for the most part, we were all just thrilled, um, to be with, uh, a bunch of just really strong, awesome women. I think that's awesome. I mean, I really do. I mean, and uh, the other person who we talked to, Rachel Washburn, who's a previous guest on the pod who, uh, went to the cultural support team, echoed the same sentiment that that there was just a different environment because it was so unconventional. And the fact that all of you were there, you realized, hey, you know, not only are we groundbreaking, but this is just some cool stuff that we have an opportunity to be a part of. And I think there was a lot of empowerment there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So assessment selection finishes. What do they tell you when you finally realize that, hey, I've made it? Uh, So they... I remember they had this kind of very complicated setup where everybody would wait in one room and the instructors would call each person in one by one. Um, and then, and then you never saw those people again. They would go, they would exit, I think via a different door. Wow. Um, Was that freaky? Was that like nerve wracking? A little bit. Yeah. And you know, I was, I remember sort of like, being ambivalent, like, well, you know, if I make it, I get to do this cool thing. But, you know, if I don't make it, then like, oh, at least I tried. And, you know, you know, then I can, you know, go off and like do what I'd originally planned. You know, my husband and I were, had started talking about like starting a family. So there's all these things where I was like, do I really want to make it? Do I really not? I don't know. Maybe I just want them to like force the decision for me. Um, but yeah, so I remember walking up and the instructor, kind of listing a bunch of like different categories. Like you, you know, you were like average in this category, you were above average in this, you were below average in this. Um, I think I remember laughing cause he has said like, you were like below lo- average and like logic and reasoning or something. And I was like, we were sleep deprived for like five days. What did you expect? <laughs> um, and then at the very end he goes and you made it. <laughs> um, and then I think at that point we were, everybody who had made it had went out the same door. So then you could kind of look around and take a look at and be like, okay, um, you know, like these are the other girls who had made it. Like now we're all like moving on to this next thing. So it was, it was exciting. It was also, you know, a little terrifying because, because if you didn't make it, then you just get to go home and kind of pick up your life where you left off. Whereas like now you've made it and there's like a billion more things that you have to start thinking about and getting ready for. You walk through the door with everybody else who made it, and you realize you're in the right room. Was there anybody in that room you looked at and went, wow, she made it? Or was there anybody <laughs> in that room that you looked at and said, well, where the hell is, you know, so-and-so? Where, how come she's not here? Um, I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, there were, for the next stage, when we, we, when we did our six-week training, there's actually another cut, which we, we actually weren't expecting, of, of uh, CSTs who were then tagged to deploy. And I think there were, there was a couple of women where, where we were definitely like, like, damn it, like she should have made it, you know, um, some of that was due to just, you know, extra injuries or whatever. Um, but I think for that first stage, um, I, I don't recall sort of second guessing any of those decisions. Sure. All right. So you go through your second phase of training, like at what point do they tell you, Hey, you're going down range? Uh, I think literally the, like the last day. Okay. Of the second set of training you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. So we did. So we came back for after assessment selection, we had a couple of weeks off and then came back for six weeks of training. Um, and they were never actually entirely clear. So we didn't actually realize that they had a set number of slots that they needed to fill. 
we thought that if you graduated from the six week training that you would then deploy. And it turned out that was not automatic. Um, so yeah, so I think like we, we graduated the course and it's somewhere in those last couple of days we're notified, like what we were notified actually, whether we would support the, um, direct action track or the village stability operations track. Which um, one did you get? Uh, direct action. Okay. Are you excited about that? Uh, <laughs> Actually, I had I had wanted uh, village stability operations. Um, that seemed to be more of the kind of the cultural stuff that I was specifically interested in. the The running joke through all of the six the six weeks of training was like, "Hey, we're called the cultural support team, but for the girls who just really can't handle this cultural stuff, then they'll just go DA um, and they can go kick down doors with rangers." So I was absolutely not expecting. Um, to get picked up for the DA track. <laughs> when you find out that you are, um, and, and you have to, that's the route you're going. Like, what are you thinking and feeling? Um, are you okay with it? Do you start to feel nervous? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was, I was a little surprised, um, you know, a little disappointed because I thought that the, the VSO track just would have been really interesting. Um, but also the, the Rangers really hadn't, didn't have a strong presence at the training at the six weeks training. We had mostly, um, you know, SF instructors, um, you know, we were at USASOC at Fort Bragg, which is, you know, more focused on the SF guys. And I think it was towards the end. And we, we honestly didn't even understand the Ranger mission that well. Um, towards the end, some of the, there were some folks from Ranger Regiment who specifically came, um, and talked to us and kind of tried to explain the, the mission a little bit better, but we didn't go through the entire training with that understanding. Um, I think for a lot of us, the way that the Ranger mission was talked about, it was, oh, you know, you'll go, um, you'll go after the objective has been secured and that's when you'll talk to the women and children. And for some reason, we had the sort of ridiculous mental image that like, you know, the strike force would go out, they would secure the objective and then we would come out like separately later, um, which is not the case at all. Right. Like we, we all were like in the same helicopters. We, you know, walked, did infill together and everything. Um, so I don't think for a lot of us, we even realized that you were actually going to be like out with the strike force at the same time on the same night raid. Um, because, well, because like the ground combat band was still there, right? So in our heads, we were like, surely we're not going to be going out with a strike force. Like that's crazy. That's not allowed. Um, so when they actually explained that, there was this sort of realization of like, oh, holy shit! Like we're actually going out with them together. I mean, look, it, it's an elite, historic seventy fifth Ranger Regiment unit, right? So you know, you had to have some perception of what the nature of the job was when you find out that you know that's where you're going. Um, does any of this at any point in time shake you? And you're like, whoa. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. Like, I was definitely nervous, but I think the nerves were more, um, can I, can I prove to the guys that I belong? Okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was more of just, you know, being able to like, you know, convince the, these like, you know, very elite male special operators that like we were value added to the mission and that we, you know, should get to participate. It's a general sentiment. I think of anybody who walks into that community, whether you're male or female, it's, 
can I not let them down? Can I prove to them that I belong here? Can I, can I show them that um, even though I didn't go through all the same training they did and I'm not a tabbed operator, I'm somebody who can survive in this environment along with them. And I think that's the real challenge. And again, I don't think, because I was one of those people and it didn't matter whether you were a male or female, they just want people who can produce results. And they don't yeah, really care what, who you are, where you come from, what your previous job in the military was. They just want people who produce results. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had male enablers who, who had those same challenges. The advantage they had is that, you know, their, their presence on the team was a little bit more established. So we had sure. sort of the two strikes of we were enablers and we were female, uh, you know, and plus this was a relatively new program. So a lot of different interesting dynamics. Your first deployment in 2012, you land on the ground in Afghanistan. Are you sitting here looking around going, what the hell am I doing here? How did I end up in this spot? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I remember we were, we got to Bagram. We were there for like a day or two, uh, waiting to get, to get pushed to our, um, our fobs. And I remember getting to our fob and the two of the CSTs met us at the helicopter to pick us up. Uh, they were already, you know, they were basically like kitted up. They were in their, their mission uniforms ready to go out. They were like, Hey, you know, we're glad you guys are here. We just came to grab you. We're actually getting ready for a mission, so just kind of follow us along and we'll, you know, we'll kind of like debrief you as we go. And I just remember the first day or two kind of feeling overwhelmed and was like, holy shit, how am I ever going to learn everything that I need to know to like replace um, these CSTs that are leaving? Like they totally have their shit together, you know, like they're like, they're, they're strong, they know their stuff. Um, they know the guys, um, how am I supposed to like do what they do? And how'd you overcome that? Uh, just, I just kept my head down and <laughs> learned as much as I could, I guess. Um, I, we, I had, you know, a really great platoon sergeant who would answer, you know, whatever dumb questions I had for him. Um, the guys on the team were, were really good in terms of like being responsive if I needed help. Um, but not, you know, sort of being overbearing or kind of like babying me, um, if I didn't, but yeah, just kind of kept my head down and, and took it one mission at a time. They say to Annie, we're going out and you're going on your first mission. Um, what are your feelings? What are you thinking? Do you feel prepared? Are you nervous? Uh, my first mission was a complete shit show. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so it was, it was supposed to be pretty easy. It was like a, you know, like a 3.6 K infill, which was pretty short, um, for the area that I was at. We were the, we were in, uh, sort of Logar Wardak province, um, very high concern for, um, RPGs. Uh, uh, targeting helicopters, not as much concern for IEDs, which really meant we would land very far away and then walk in. Um, so a lot of, a lot of cardio workouts. Um, so like a, you know, a 5k infill was, was not out of the ordinary. So this one was, you know, it was pretty short. It was, it was like a 3k, uh, you know, should have been easy. I was, we were, we were going out and force a CSTs. It was actually three of us. Um, cause it was me and a C and, and my, my CST partner, we would, we were each tagged to support, um, one platoon each cause there were two Ranger platoons where we were at and then the CST that we were replacing. So there was three of us that was going to be easy because typically it's only one CST that goes out the strike force. And in that case, you know, you're doing 
everything. You're talking to the women, you're doing the searching, you're um, d- doing the tactical questioning afterwards. And in this case, we had three of us. So that felt like a total luxury. Um, but I was just massively underprepared. Um, I didn't eat enough before the mission. I didn't pack enough water. My interpreter had to like give me one of his juice boxes because I was getting dehydrated. Um, I had, we had, you know, we have these badges that allow us to get it off of our compound. Uh, and I forgot, and the, I had it on a lanyard around my neck and I forgot the badge or I forgot to take off the badge. So that just sat under my body armor for the entire mission. Um, <laughs> the infill turned out to be more arduous than we were expecting. We ended up having to like climb over walls with ladders and we were like jumping over ditches. Um, I think like everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. My, my nods were fogging up. Um, I was literally just like, it was fogged up so bad that I just literally could see like a green haze. Um, and we were walking through these sort of agricultural fields where there's like, you know, small little hills and ditches. And I was literally taking a step and just falling flat on my face and taking a step and falling flat on my face. Um, but you know, it was, uh, it at least like, like it was very hard to get worse from there. (laughs) Sure. Um, but yeah, that first mission was just, it was a goat rope. (laughs) What's it like on one of those missions where there is direct contact with the enemy, where, you know, bullets are flying? Uh, I was only in a couple of ticks. And, you know, honestly, from from my personal experience, at least, it was, um, you know, it was like not in the movies where there were sort of like bullets flying everywhere and it was close by. Like we could... It was, it was actually a more like cerebral experience. Like we could hear, you know, we would hear the bullets, um, and, you know, kind of realize that we were in a tick. But for me, I was usually far enough away from like the actual, you know, path of the bullets that it was mainly kind of sitting and waiting, um, for the tick to be over. As you're going through these missions and going through these experiences, obviously they start to get easier for you. Um, when you look back on the experiences, anything stand out from a particular mission that stays with you? Uh, yeah, there's a couple of some interesting experiences, more just kind of like bits and pieces from different missions. Um, so, I mean, there was, so there was a couple where it just like things got a little dicey. So I remember those. So we had one mission where... Uh, we were going after a fairly high-ranking insurgent. Um, our intel guys have been tracking him for a really long time, and we were, like, getting ready to go out, and he suddenly changed locations. So it was this, like, quick flurry where we were responding very quickly. You know, people were nervous because we hadn't mission planned for this particular location. We were just kind of rushing out the door to get this guy uh, and actually getting into a pretty substantial tick, um, but the mission ended up you know, being, being successful and that we like got this guy who's high ranking. We got a bunch of other guys. Like it was just like a a classic, like mission that went really well. Um, so I mean, that mission was a really great experience. There was another mission that was, uh, you know, a little bit scarier where the mission itself went great. You know, we thought we were, we had gotten the guy. Um, we thought we were going to be done early and people were, you know, happy that they could get back and and hit the chow hall for breakfast. And uh, as the helicopters were coming in to pick us up, one of the helicopters had a hard landing. Um, 
and I remember, so I, I'm always usually lined up after the platoon leader and, and, and we're, you know, running towards the helicopter to get on. And I just remember we start running and there's a, a huge orange flash. Uh, and I thought my platoon leader was dead. Um, I couldn't see him. I had no idea when anybody was in front of me. We basically all just like did a 180 and started running the other direction. And it turned out the helicopter had hard and, and, you know, flipped over on its side. Uh, everybody was safe. Nobody was seriously hurt. I think a couple guys got like minor shrapnel injuries. Um, but the pilots were safe. Everybody was safe, but that turned into then a much longer, you know, recovery mission where we had to regroup. Um, you know, they sent in reinforcements. They sent in like, you know, more Air Force PJs. Uh, they ended up bl- blowing the helicopter in place and then everybody go home like several hours later. Wow. Um, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, uh, that was an interesting one. Um, and then there's just kind of these weird surreal moments, uh, on my, on that first mission that was such a shit show. I was standing in the compound and suddenly like a herd of 30 goats just comes running out of the compound. Um, and they just run outside the walls and I guess they were going to go grazing or something. And then 20 minutes later, they all came around and like ran back in. Um, and it was just ridiculous. There was, you know, 30 Afghan women and children kind of huddled on the floor. Like I am, you know, standing in this foreign country, I'm kitted up, but I'm, and I'm sweaty and I'm tired and these goats are just running past me. What was it like communicating with Afghan women and children and how much of an impact do you feel you made? So the, I mean, the communications that we had was was usually very quick, right? And it was in very challenging situations. Like this was not where we were, you know, sitting together in a circle and like sharing thoughts. Um, this was in a very stressful environment where, you know, it's two in the morning, there are big scary men with lots of weapons in their houses. Um, and generally the, the way that we were taught is our job was to be sort of this oasis of calm and safety as much as possible for these women and children, right? I was the only female there. I had my hair down in a braid so that they could as much as possible tell that I was a woman in a uniform. And it was my job to kind of, to, if that they were really worried to calm them down. Um, and then also to, you know, get whatever information I could out of them. Um, so in a lot of cases it was, you know, a, a lot of one-way communication, me kind of telling them what was going on, me giving them instructions, you know, I need you to sit over here. I need to search you all. Um, those kinds of things. But I mean, there were some interesting interactions. There was one time where the woman was just very, very concerned about, uh, the men searching her house and she had a, a, you know, a box with a lock on it and she did not want the men to break the box. And she's like, I have a key. I'll give them the key. Just don't let them, you know, break my stuff. So I had to like, I passed the key over, um, and they were like calm after that. Or there was another time where the women were like, don't touch my jewelry. I want to go get my jewelry. Um, you know, and it was my job to kind of like keep those things calm. Uh, and I, I was honestly expecting sort of more resistance. Um, right. Cause if you're in someone's house at two in the morning, I would expect that they wouldn't be very happy about it. Um, but I mean, most of the women were pretty compliant whenever asked them to do anything, which is not the case with some of our other CSTs. They had harder times with the women. Um, you know, and most of the women were actually fairly cooperative, which they could have been just bullshitting me to get me out of their house. Um, 
but yeah, at least like most of my interactions with the women were, um, you know, fairly civil, um, as calm as, as possible in a situation like that. What's the biggest difference between Annie before that deployment and Annie after that deployment? Um, that's an interesting question. I'm, so, I mean, professionally, I think it, it, it has definitely sort of changed my career path, right? Like this is, so I think professionally it, you know, helps inform my thoughts on, uh, you know, gender dynamics, national security policy, that kind of stuff. I actually ended up I ended up studying a lot of this stuff when I went to grad school. Um, you know, I like talked about this, ex- my CST experience when applying for grad school. I still pull on this experience a lot. Um, when I do, I do a little bit of work in national security, not a whole lot. Um, and I, I mean, I think personally it's, it's on the one hand, it's, it's cool and kind of reassuring to think like, Hey, I did this really awesome, amazing thing. Um, and I, I know always have, uh, on the other hand, it's a little terrifying to think like, am I a, am I a one trick pony? And is this the coolest thing that I'm ever going to do? Um, you know, and am I going to be able to find something else that, you know, is also cool and interesting? I don't know if that answers the question. Let me, let me try it this too way. Well. I- <laughs> so before you left, I'm sure your husband had some words for you. Um, when you got <laughs> back, you know, did he notice a change in you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think. And not that I think you would be a dynamically different person. I just think perspectives change a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. We actually, yeah, we've actually had some interesting discussions about this. Um, There's, (laughs) so there's times when, like, when my husband and I are kind of talking to each other or, you know, trying to get some stuff done. And, you know, we're kind of not necessarily confused, but we kind of going back, go back and forth between treating each other like a spouse and treating each other like a, like a coworker or an officer. Right. Um, <laughs> and there's times where, you know, there's times where he'll be like, I'm, you know, I'm treating you like, like an officer, like a special operator. Cause like, that's what I know you can be and not as my wife. And there's times when I'm like, no, I need you to like treat me like a wife right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely that I think it's, and I think some like part of that experience is also just kind of like knowing that like just physically that there were things that I like did not think that I was ever capable of doing and that, um, and that I had these sort of like self, you know, pre, uh, preconceived notions or sort of like limitations that I placed on myself without even realizing, mm-hmm. um, and sort of being more intentional about like thinking through and like challenging those things. Right. Like I, I went through, you know, however many years in the military up until I applied for CSC, like never bothering to like do a pull up cause it just didn't occur to me that I could. Um, and then like, once I got to CSD training and they were like, you need to be able to do a pull-up for the upper body strength assessment. I was like, oh crap. Like now I need to actually do a pull-up. Um, you know, whereas like in the past, it just never occurred to me to challenge myself. So maybe like being like being more willing to challenge some of those like baseline, you know, preconceived notions, um, 
the fact that the ground combat ban was lifted like two years after I tried out for CSD when like when I was starting CSD, like I just did not even think that that was something that would change, you know, anytime in the near future and sort of being able, willing to challenge some of those more, what I had taken to be like established, you know, established baseline assumptions. Now that your CST portion of your career is over, um, if you were speaking to a group of women, what would you say to them about the CST program and um, what type of person are they looking for? Uh, so, I mean, there's sort of the, the basics, right? You have to be physically fit. Um, you know, you have to be, you know, tactically competent, um, but I think they're also looking for they're looking for women who are adaptable, um, you know, who can work in ambiguous situations. You know, they're looking for at the risk of sounding stereotypical, like the quiet professional, right? The ones who just kind of keep their heads down, keep their mouths shut, and just you know do the hard work. Um, but I think I would also just tell the women that like you know you're not you don't have to do the CST program. You can just go be a ranger or go be a SEAL, right? Like the CST program at the time was groundbreaking because that was the only way for women to work in these communities and to do what these people do. And now like that is, that's no longer the case, right? If you want to go work with the SEALs, go work, go be a SEAL. Um, and I think I think that also that takes away sort of a security blanket for women, right? Like in the past, you know, a woman could say, oh, well, I never, I, I, I couldn't work for special, I didn't work for special operations because I couldn't, right? Like because I literally could not because of my gender, they wouldn't let me go to assessment and selection. That's not there anymore. And that's great on the one hand and a little scary, right? Like it's more of a gut check. Um, sure. you know, now if you're not a ranger, it's because you chose not to be, yeah, you chose not to be, you know, right. you didn't try, um, you know, and now I think I would tell, you know, women coming in, like you have the chance to try. Um, so now it's all on you. So you're moving past all this in your career. Um, and the Pat Tillman scholar thing comes around. <laughs> how does, how do you end up connected with them and, and what happens? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of the exact, I think, I mean, oh, actually, no, you know what, this is, this is how it happened. There is a, uh, there's a little bit of a CST mafia within the Tillman scholars. Ah, there is. Uh, (laughs) I mean, there's, there's some very natural connections, right? So Pat Tillman served in the Ranger Regiment. A lot of CST served with Ranger Regiment. There's kind of that kind of natural connection, um, when I, I think it was actually our rotation CST three that kind of first started this wave. Um, there was a couple, I think two women who were picked up as Tillman scholars the year ahead of me. Right. So as we're all coming back from CSTs, like you saw the sort of wave of women who were, you know, either like leaving active duty or just kind of looking for other things to do or like seeking to make some sort of a transition. Because I think for a lot of us, the CSD program was a catalyst for something, right? And that was either, the something was either like going off and doing like more super hua stuff in the military. So, you know, ranger school, special missions units, whatever. Or that was a catalyst to like just do something completely different 
um, you know, and pursue something in civilian life. So we had several CSTs who applied for the Tillman scholarship and got picked up. And, you know, we see this in like Facebook groups and updates and that kind of stuff. So I think that was actually how I first heard about um, the Tillman Foundation was through my fellow CSTs. Um, I applied for it between my my first and second years of grad school. I got picked up for it and was a Tillman scholar for my second year um, in grad school. And then obviously I'm still connected um, with the foundation just through other events and, and more professional development stuff. Well, listen, to say that you've been part of some elite groups would be understating it um, because both the Tillman scholars and the CSTs are only for the select few. And, and you know, you should be proud. I mean, understating it again, you should be proud of yourself for, for getting to all that. I mean, it really is. It's remarkable. Um, very few people get to do one of those things or be associated with one of those groups, and you were associated with both. So uh, congratulations is obviously in order. Oh, thank you. You know, when you look back on everything, Annie, and uh, you know, you're still serving now in a different capacity, and I can relate to it in the sense that maybe nothing will ever match your time in the CSTs, whatever you do in uniform. I mean, I'm coming up on 20 years, and I still say my first deployment where I was attached to the special operations community, nothing has mm-hmm. even come close to it. It's just been the best experience of my military, and I'm okay with that. You know, I, th- I think yeah. that um, y- you get to certain peaks in your career, and despite the fact that we're always trying to get to what's next in the rank and in the job and everything else, because that's kind of the way our corporate culture is, if you will, in the military, that you always have to be mm-hmm. kind of growing or dying. There's not a third direction. And to, yeah. that, to that end, I think that, um, you know, what you accomplished and what you did, um, that, that special part of your life really, um, it doesn't define you, but it's a defining moment for you, right? Yeah, for sure. So in that, when you look back on it, fond memories clearly, but how do you characterize it in the scope of not only your career, but your life? Uh, I mean, I don't think, I don't think I would be where I am now, um, without the CST experience. Um, so I think it definitely, you know, changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, it's not that I'm like specifically, you know, like working on issues surrounding CST, but I think it gave me, it gave me a launching platform to do other things. Um, I'm pretty you know, I'm convinced that I got into grad school based off of, in part, my CSD experience, because that was something that I that I spoke about a lot in my application. Um, and I think there's, you know, it's opened up other opportunities um, just simply because that's something that I can draw on and, and talk about. Um, and I think it's just also made me, you know, more aware of, like, other issues you know, in gender dynamics, in, you know, national security, that kind of stuff. So I would say it's, it's definitely like changed the, the trajectory of my life. I have, yeah, I have no idea what I'd be doing if I didn't do CSD. How much further does the military have to go with gender relations as it pertains to females? Uh, I, I mean, I think we've made, I think we've made good progress, but I think we've, we've still got a ways to go. Right. I think it's, it's tempting to say, you know, Hey, look, everything's fixed. Um, you know, everybody, all the, all the career fields are open now. We should be good to go. Um, I think there are still issues. I know that there are organizations who are doing some really great, great work in this area. Um, you know, SWAN service women actions network, uh, Weiss women, international security. They've, 
you know, they've taken, they've undertaken studies where, you know, they've looked at the experiences of women, uh, and especially enlisted women who are, who are moving into these, um, com- ground combat MOSs, uh, and their, and some of their experience is, you know, frankly, just really terrible. Um, you know, they're running into just sort of outright discrimination and sexism when they're, mo- when they're moving into their units. You know, they've got male senior NCOs who are supposed to be the ones taking care of them and helping them out as they would, as they should any soldier who are the ones, um, you know, who are acting in ways that are, are not acceptable and based solely because of their gender. So I think we've still, we've still got a ways to go. Um, I mean, I think we're making progress, but we're not, we're not quite there yet. I, as a senior leader in the organization, you know, uh, part of me feels like it's my job to seek out females in particular for positions, um, given the fact that, again, you know, the Army is only 13% female. Um, but mm-hmm. is that the right attitude or the wrong attitude to look for women in particular? I think, I think there's a careful balance there, right? I think, I mean, I, I don't think it's wrong to not only women, right, but like trying to, you know, be trying to striving for diversity and inclusion in, you know, lots of different aspects and not just with gender. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think the perception is like, oh, you know, so-and-so only got this position because of her gender or, you know, whatever other background. Let me give you an Um, example real quick. I was looking for a company commander and mm -hmm. in looking for candidates, I specifically said to people on my staff, I want you to find a female. I want you to find a female. Now she had to interview for the job and she had Mm -hmm. to win the interview over everybody else. But Mm -hmm. I felt like it was my position to at least provide her with an interview to try and win the job. And she did. And and to Mm -hmm. that end, I feel like, I, uh, and yes, is it, I don't, I don't know if it's playing favorites. I just felt like it was in a male dominated organization that senior leaders have a responsibility to at least afford women the same opportunities. And if I didn't seek her out, then she does not even have a chance to win that interview. One that she did. Yeah. And I, th- I think, I think that's fair, right? Cause you were, you know, you, you made the effort to get women to apply and then they had to go through the same process to compete and actually, and then actually, you know, interview and win that position. And I think that's fair. And I think, you know, like in terms of extending opportunities where they then have the chance to compete on an even playing field, you know, and win that position. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. Well, it's an interesting discussion. Certainly I agree with you. I think we've made strides, but we're nowhere near, where we need to be as far as equal footing uh, all around. And look, the, the demographics being what it is, as I just mentioned, how heavily skewed it is to males, I don't think that's ever going to change. But I do think that, uh, you know, if you continue to seek out females who can, you'll find that there are more than you think that they are, as opposed to yeah. sitting back and waiting for them to show up. I, yeah, I agree. I don't think we would ever get to a, you know, a 50-50 gender balance in the military. No, I don't never. think we need to. Um, but I do think that, you know, anybody should have the chance to, you know, succeed um, regardless of their, like the, you know, gender should not be a factor. Um, and I think in, in many, maybe not many, but I think in, 
in a not insignificant number of cases, um, gender is still a factor, whether that's conscious or unconscious. Annie, you've had an incredible career. You've blazed a trail and you've certainly made a path for other uh, females and other soldiers in general and airmen to follow. So from that standpoint, I congratulate you on all your success. I wish you nothing but the best going forward for your career. And all I can say is, Annie Clement, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Well, thanks, Mark. It was great talking to you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This isn't just any day, it's the day. The day you welcome new people to your team or welcome an idea that changes everything. Wherever your day takes you, Comcast Business can help. With a network that can deliver gig speeds to most businesses, Comcast Business Security Edge to help protect your connected devices and expert support 24-7. Every day in business is a big day. Comcast Business will keep you ready for what's next. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.